the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, I'll be discussing the prospect of a global slowdown in economic growth and what should be done about it, and also what the implications are for Ireland. Joining me will be Global Chief Economist of Man U Life, Megan Green on the line from the US, and in studio, Austin Hughes, Chief Economist at KBC Bank. Later on, I'll be talking to Irish Times journalist Jack Horgan-Jones about the latest on the controversy at the FAI. After Auditor's Delight filed a notice to the company's registration office on Monday over alleged breaches of the Companies Act on the grounds that accounts were not kept properly. But before that, Peter Hamilton is in studio for a roundup of some of this week's other stories. Peter, what have you got for us today? Well, I suppose the big one was Green Reach and the fact that it put itself uh, up for sale on Monday. Just worth reminding people, this is the commercial property developer Excuse with me. about $1.5 billion, uh, in its portfolio of assets, which includes offices, uh, logistics parks and, and, and things like that. Okay. So it put itself up for sale, bemoaning its just the performance of its share price. Uh, and specifically, its chairman said that its share price has been subject to a material and persistent structural discount to its net asset value per share. So uh, I suppose it's worth noting that the, the net asset value uh, is about 183 per share, €1.83, and its stock is traded as, as much as 22% lower. Okay. Uh, now, after they made this announcement, investors were, were quite buoyed by it, and, and the stock rose to as much as 170 by yesterday, getting dangerously close to right. that, that NAV level. But in any, in any event... Um, Look, they, they they seem to want to get out because of that uh, underperformance in its share price, or so they say at least. Uh, and it has some prime assets uh, which could be sold all, all okay, so at this one. Is, or, or this is part. Stephen Vernon and and Pat Gunn, of course, who uh, who cannily sold a lot of assets mm. before the last crash mm. uh, and bought at the pretty much the bottom, or at least Green Reach was was launched at the bottom of the market right. in twenty thirteen. Yeah. Does this indicate that? They believe the top of the market has been reached, or uh, I suppose cynics would, would would think that perhaps. But but uh, you, you know, I, like Stephen Vernon in particular has form uh, in this regard and made a number Absolutely. of smart smart bets previously, as you just mentioned. It's hard to know. I suppose commercial uh, com- commercial rents. We expected them to start dropping last year. They didn't. They're holding yeah. uh, they're holding firm. If you think. Um, if you look at some of Green Reed's assets, like one Molesworth Street just off uh, Dawson Street, uh, where Barclays is a tenant, they've some prime tenants there. So it doesn't appear as as if they're going to become vacant anytime sure. soon. So it's but a bit still, of an unusual one. Still, I guess when you bu- when you buy in twenty thirteen or you buy at the bottom of the market, you're in a comfortable position. Yeah. And, and I'm right. I'm right in saying that they've said somebody may come in and buy the company mm. or may buy its assets. They're they're open to offers, so yeah. to speak. In in in, in all. Uh, they are respects. they are open to offers, uh, and, and and but now the issue with selling some of those assets means that they could pay uh, about twenty five percent tax on the sure. on the increase of some of those properties if they're less year less than three years old, and okay. one of those is that Barclays one uh, one Molesworth Street. Okay. So it might be neater to sell the to sell the. It might be neater to sell the match. group, and yeah. I'm sure that'll be a much easier uh, a much easier ask. And uh, J P Morgan Casanova is is looking after the sale. Okay, an interesting one to watch uh, over the next couple of months, I would have thought. Mm. Kingspan. Yeah, Kingspan was appear, appears to be on the acquisition trail and this was a particularly big one that they announced yesterday. Yeah. Uh, they offered to pay $700 million for parts of Belgian group Rectisil uh, in what I would be... I was wondering about the pronunciation. Say, yeah, you yeah, set me yeah. right. <laughs> uh, so that would be its biggest acquisition. 
They specifically want to pick up the company's insulation and flexible foam manufacturing business and then it plans to straight away sell off that foam business uh, and it says it has agreed an exclusive deal with an unnamed third party. Now Rectocell is... Float off the foam. Indeed, right. yeah, yeah. So Rectocell is, is uh, looking at this, they're analysing this. Now they've said they haven't been told about this sale of the foam business to a third party. Nevertheless, okay. they're they're, they're analysing uh, the proposal. Uh, you know, it appears as though this will this will cost Kingspan more than it has. Nevertheless, they, their their finances do appear to be robust, and its chief executive Gene Murta recently said uh, that they had six hundred and sixty million of committed undrawn facilities in cash. So they would need to sell off that phone business, I suppose, to to not go over that. Um, but also the the insulation business, while smaller than the phone business, mm. is more profitable. And they have interests in that area. Elsewhere in the continent. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. So, so there's a kind of a consolidation play underway yeah, here, I think. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that, but that appears to be the case. Uh, and look, they, they, with that 660 million, provided they sell off that phone business, they do have a bit of a war chest here. Yeah, and like the industrial giant CRH, they seem to have the acquisition, the trick of buying things, bringing them into their group and, and moving forward again. Yeah, absolutely. And as you'll see, CRH are offloading some assets now at the moment. So yeah. they're, 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 there's a bit of a, a look at these portfolios and Kingspan is obviously doing the same thing. Okay. And finally, the gig economy. Yeah, so this was an interesting one yesterday from the European Union and specifically the, the Parliament uh MEPs said that some gig economy workers are set to benefit from greater protection after they approved a new set of rules. Um, what they did was they approved a set of minimum rights for workers, but they were keen to sing, uh, single out rather those in Deliveroo and Uber, okay. suggesting that these would uh, benefit uh, for, from these rules, except they won't, um, no. because what the, the MEPs also, or what, what the, the Parliament also did, was it left self-employed workers outside of the scope of this. And if, if we recall back to December, uh, Deliveroo won a, a court action in the UK, which found that their workers were self-employed. Now, that hasn't been tested here and it hasn't been tested in Europe as of yet. But one would imagine that if it is, the UK case would prove to be persuasive mm-hmm. and and those workers would be deemed to be self-employed. So they seem to fall outside the scope of this, the scope of a law that was really to try and benefit them in the first place. So it's it's unusual. So is this MEPs uh, preparing for to head to the electorate and trying to do something popular or is there actually some reality here? I suppose this has been in train for some time and, and look, there is... The, the thing is, if you look to 2016, uh, a survey from Eurostat found that 25% of employment relationships were what were called non-standard. Right. So... The, the nature of employment with digitization of the economy is changing and flexibility is becoming more of a thing um and and look this this law does do something it, it does uh, mean that those except for those non non self-employed or except for those self-employed people workers will benefit from a, a minimum level of predictability such as predetermined hours um and they should also be able to refuse assignments outside their their predetermined hours and benefit from things like uh, shorter uh, parole or probation shorter probation periods indeed um <laughs> similar enough concept right but it will do something just not what they think it's going to do okay uh, Peter Hamilton for this week. Thank you very much. Thanks. I'm joined in studio now by Austin Hughes, Chief Economist at KBC Bank, and on the line from the US, Megan Green, Global Chief Economist of Manu Life. Megan Green, uh, a lot of discussion 
internationally about uh, slowdown in economic growth and debate about what the Fed and the ECB and other policymakers should do. Are we heading for a big slowdown or what's your perception of, uh, of what's going on? So I think... Uh, if you're going to try to figure out a global macroeconomic view, it has to be driven right now by what's going on in China. So we are having a slowdown across the developed world, but China experienced an incredible slowdown at the end of last year. Um, part of it was intentional. Part of it was deleveraging and cracking down on corruption. Um, but then the U.S. imposed tariffs, and um, so the slowdown was bigger than the Chinese authorities thought. Um, they've been just shoveling coal into the furnace, into the economic furnace for the past um, eight or nine months or so. And now it's starting to finally bite um, and it's starting to support growth. So um, China's turning around and that should have really direct implications for um, Europe and for Japan, um, Germany in particular, which is incredibly directly exposed to China. Um, I think half of Volkswagen sales go to China, for example. So that should boost European and Japanese growth, um, it will have less of a direct impact on the U.S., but it should also buoy U.S. growth indirectly. Um, I think it would have been unreasonable for any of us to have expected the U.S. and Europe and Japan to continue growing well above potential mm. unless we got some kind of fiscal boost, some kind of monetary boost, some kind of jump in productivity growth, or some kind of jump in the labor supply. And I'm not seeing any of those things happen. So absent those four things, there is no way for any of these economies to continue growing well above potential. So the developed economies really are slowing down, but the good news is they're slowing down from well above their potential growth. So the U.S., for example, slowing down from around 3%. Um, potential is around 1.75%, so there is some room to slow down. Potential for Europe in aggregate is somewhere between uh, 1 and 1.5%. 1 .5%. Potential for Japan is somewhere between 0.5 and 1%. So we should expect most developed economies to be slowing down to those um, potential growth rates. And I think I think the, same, the only exception, the only real exception to the global synchronized slowdown story is China, and that should boost emerging markets as well. Okay, so a slowdown, but not a lapse into recession as far as we can tell. Certainly not this year, um, with a few exceptions. Italy comes to mind. Um, yes. And, you know, Germany just skated past a recession, but I do think a lot of that was one-off. So, you know, regulatory changes in the auto sector mm -hmm. continue to beleaguer that industry. Um, and also, you know, levels of the Rhine, which are now back to normal. So that should help. So we're getting some more mixed data out of Germany, whereas we were only getting bad data before. I do think Germany should rebound a little bit. So there are a few exceptions, but generally, you know, we shouldn't have a recession this year. And actually, I think most economists have come to consensus that we'll have a recession in the U.S. at least in 2020. Um, when economists come to that kind of consensus, uh, you can almost be sure that a recession won't happen then. Um, and, and I think the real reason they've come to that consensus is because all the fiscal stimulus that the U.S. provided um, last year and this year will peter out by the end of this year. So there will be a bit of a fiscal cliff and government spending will be a headwind on growth. And I just think that means we'll slow down more. It doesn't necessarily mean we'll go into recession next year. Okay. I wasn't. I. I didn't uh, think economists did consensus, but anyway, we um, shouldn't. <laughs> there has this has obviously led to a lot of debate about whether what the Fed and the ECB should do. And, and I know you're writing this week about the debate, particularly in the U.S., about the Fed and whether they need to, as you say, put their foot on the accelerator again or just um, just hold fire and see how things pan out. 
So I don't think that the Fed needs to provide more fuel for the economy. Um, I think pausing is okay for now. I actually think the last FOMC meeting uh, was a communications disaster. So the Fed completely capitulated to the markets um, and revised its forecast for rate hikes from two this year to zero. Um, and they really painted themselves into a corner. And um, the reasons that Chair Powell um, gave for why the Fed was rethinking its rate path um, back in uh, December and January included all these cross currents that he talked about. And one was Chinese growth, one was global growth, one was financial conditions, which were tightened significantly at the end of last year, one was Brexit, one was a government shutdown. Um, come the second half of this year, pretty much all of those things should have abated, um, with the exception of Brexit, maybe. And, and that's really not a first-order effect for the U.S. And so okay. I do think our conversation in the second half of the year will be much more optimistic than it was in the first half of this year. And the Fed's really painted itself into a corner now. It's going to be really hard for them to try to put rate hikes back on the table um, if things are looking better, as I think they should be. Um, so I think the Fed is on hold, and that's okay. I don't think that we're risking kind of any major bubbles um, as a result of low Fed policy. But I really don't think the Fed needs to step on the gas. Um, Europe is a different story. Um, I do think Europe is right to step on the monetary policy gas a little bit, um, particularly to support the banks, which are suffering pretty significantly from negative rates. And the impact of negative rates on banks w were mitigated in part by these Teltros, which are um, coming due. So I think it's it's necessary for the ECB to offer another Teltro, which they've now announced. This is long-term um, financing for the banking sector. That's right. And it's basically subsidizing a lot of European banks. So we don't know the terms of the latest one. We'll find out probably in June. But uh, the last Teltro that was offered essentially um, paid European banks to borrow from the ECB if they promise to lend on to the real economy. So sure. it's a real subsidy for the banks. This one will probably be less accommodative, but to try to wean banks off of the Teltros. But I do think that um, it will continue to be a subsidy for the banks. And I actually think that the Teltros are the most unappreciated monetary policy innovation that we've had in this cycle. But I think they mean the ECB actually has much more firepower than any other central bank in the next downturn. I know that's really out of consensus. Most people think the ECB is pretty stuffed in the next downturn, given rates are you know already mm, negative. But uh, if you could make the Teltros at an incredibly negative rate, so you could say, we'll pay banks 150 basis points if they borrow from us and they can lend on at negative 50 basis points, then there will be demand for borrowing because, you know, businesses and people will get paid to borrow uh, and the banks can still benefit from a carry trade. So that, I mean, that's a real stimulus that no other central bank has, has managed to figure out how to offer. Sure. Interesting point. Uh, Austin Hughes in studio here. What's your perception on these international trends and what they mean for the Irish economy? Well, first of all, I, I think, as Megan has said, the, the global outlook is probably a little bit brighter than a lot of the coverage over the last while, particularly around the IMF forecast, mm. might suggest. Uh, I do think, as Megan says, that there, there has been a slowing to trend in the US. But I think a greater fear at the end of last year was that in time-honoured tradition, the Federal Reserve was going to continue to march rates high, higher until it killed the economy. And the reality is it wasn't going to kill the US economy first. It was going to kill a lot of emerging markets. So that fear gripped markets. I think it's still there to an extent in a lot of economic forecasts. But the fact that the Fed has stood down very significantly, and remember, 
while it is a pause on interest rates, they've also said they're going to stop the quantitative tightening through selling its treasury portfolio. So that's a major, major turnaround. And I do, do think it makes the global outlook a little bit brighter. So I do think we're in sort of darkest hour at the moment territory because uh, when you look at the global forecast this morning, the German government, now that is a slow down, a, a downward revision. Oh. You know, we've gone from 1.8 last autumn to 0.5 today. But again, as Megan said, there's a lot of special factors there that mean, you know, this sort of global slowdown will undoubtedly weigh on Irish economic growth, but I don't think it's catastrophic. And I think there are two very significant offsets. First, as Megan said, the ECB seems to be thinking about being more generous. It certainly postponed any prospect of an interest rate increase. Financial markets don't see that happening until 2021, never mind, you know, 2020. And I think the other aspect that we're seeing is the postponement of Brexit which takes an immediate, really severe risk away from the Irish economy. So yes, growth is slowing down. We've seen it in most of the numbers through the tail end. And again, it was slowing from something that was probably a little bit too hot to handle. Remember, GDP growth at the start of last year, the first quarter, was 9.6% year and year. That's back in the old boom times. Yeah. We're down to about 3% at the end of the year. Department of Finance this morning, like, like most other forecasters are talking about something around 4% this year, we'd actually be a little bit more negative in KBC, about 3.5%. But that's still very healthy. We're seeing employment increase. We're seeing incomes improve. And in those circumstances, it's probably a pause that refreshes rather than the big one coming that really should be a concern. Take your point about Brexit and the, and the risk being delayed, but I suppose it is still a risk for the Irish economy later this year and looking into 2020 and makes policy making pretty complicated for that reason. It makes it very complicated, but perhaps again, uh, and I, I don't want to sound too optimistic because I'll be thrown out of the Economist Union, uh, but in terms of that, it also delays the likelihood of uh, a bidder takes all sort of auction in an Irish and election context. So in that yeah. sense, you're seeing Department of Finance being fairly cautious in its projections. You're likely to see preparations for a cautious budget. Uh, and we know certainly our own consumer sentiment and other sort of indicators are suggesting that by and large consumers are being cautious. Retail sales are doing well, but we're still seeing a significant drop in car sales. So there's an element of caution in the economy which makes us reasonably well placed to deal with Brexit. Brexit is clearly going to be a negative, but um, in, in terms of the outlook, I, I think we're probably as well positioned as we could be. Sterling is holding in a lot better than might have been feared. Companies have had more time to prepare, and it does look like whatever happens, it will be a softer Brexit when it eventually materialises. Yeah, let's hope you're right. Um, Megan, what's your, your thinking on Brexit and its impact on the, on the, on the European economic picture? So I think um, Brexit will clearly, it depends entirely on the, um, the choreography, of course. Mm. But if, if we do end up getting um, some kind of softer Brexit rather than a no-deal Brexit, then uh, it would still be a drag on the European economy. But I think the, the most pernicious piece about Brexit is much more medium to long term. And it's something no one's really looking at um, now that we're in a recovery. But um, you don't have to go back too far to remember the Eurozone being in a massive crisis. Um, and everyone talking about banking union and political union and fiscal union 
Um, and the one thing that didn't get as much attention but should have was a capital markets union. So I think it, you know, it's a waste of time to try to create a, a full political and fiscal union in the Eurozone. It's just burning political capital and something that's never going to happen. Um, but one way to do that through the private sector actually is a capital markets union. Um, and I bring this up in the context of Brexit because, of course, the one country that was really driving that process of a capital markets union is the UK. So with the UK leaving the EU, that, that initiative, which was already going to take at least a decade to complete um, is pretty much dead in the water and so that means when there is the next downturn um, the eurozone at least uh, could be in big trouble um, and I think we'll have looked back and thought this was a really wasted recovery um, and, and and brexit is playing a huge role in that one of the key areas of interest here uh, Megan particularly among consumers is is obviously what the ECB are are, are aren't going to do with interest rates. Uh, it it does seem now as if an interest rate rise is 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 off is 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 out of the picture for for the foreseeable future. Is that fair, or could expectations turn around there fairly quickly? I think that is fair. Actually, I think Mario Draghi has resigned himself to never ever being able to hike rates yes. um, in his entire tenure there because he ends he finishes up in October. Um, and I do think while I mentioned that you know Germany in particular is very exposed to China and China should be booming by the end of the year, I think um, that being said, that just mitigates the downside risk. That doesn't mean that Europe is going to also be booming. And so mm. I do think um, the ECB has probably missed its chance to go ahead and hike rates in this cycle, which does leave a question um, that, you know, reigned over the IMF meetings this past weekend in Washington, D.C. That's, you know, what what policy room is there in the next downturn if the ECB already has negative rates? Mm-hmm. They can't really cut rates much further. Um, it would it would really hurt the banks. Um, and there the ECB has Teltros. Um, but on the fiscal side, is there any room? And I think because of German economic orthodoxy, there really isn't. So um, I think that's the biggest question that we're facing is what, what we're all going to do in the next downturn. Austin, um, the outlook for interest rates? Yeah, I'd agree. I think the European Central Bank has uh, probably resigned itself to not being able to raise rates significantly in large part because both cyclically and structurally we're seeing problems with inflation in terms of inflation being too low rather than too high as in the past. So I think that's an issue. I do think the ECB will give it a last try to raise interest rates at some stage uh, in 2020, late 2020, early 2021 for financial stability uh, reasons. When the Federal Reserve raised rates, it, it started raising rates in December 15, didn't raise for another year. Yeah, People it was thought seems, it was seems finished. A, bit of a false start at the time, yeah. And, you know, I think the ECB will say, if we can get a little bit of a tightening underway, and it's not even a tightening, it's an increase in interest rates, but leaving monetary policy accommodative. So I think they would try and get away from the negative deposit rate without raising the signal refinancing rate very dramatically. And by indicating that it's more done for financial stability reasons, you will end up with market interest rates not rising very far. So that keeps the juice going in the economy. But I think there's a nominal concern, as Megan mentioned, about negative interest rates and what their impact on the banking sector. So I do think we will see tweaks there. And that could cause a little bit of a stop start in the European economy as we go through next year. Sure. So the negative rates are the rates that uh, the fact that banks have to 
effectively pay the ECB to deposit money there overnight at the moment. Exactly. That's an issue that the ECB has been teasing out. Now, initially, the banks benefited because they saw an improvement in loan volume, the quality of their credits improved. All those elements moved into a more positive territory. But now it's more a concern that their deposit rates, the rates they pay to depositors, are sticky and consequently their net interest margins have deteriorated. So I think that is a concern. And obviously, again, a little bit like the points that Megan is raising, this is something more for the long term rather than the immediate uh, next three months. But if the banking sector in Europe isn't healthy, that's the way the ECB pushes its policy into the broader economy. So it does need to improve things there. And it also needs to find some way to tolerate maybe a little bit more fiscal largesse across Europe. Okay. Megan, final question, if we're probably on a fair question, but if we're sitting here at the end of the year looking out to uh, 2020, what will we be looking at? Um, in terms of the global economy? Yeah. Uh, so I think we'll be looking at a continued slowdown. It'll be very much the same trend that we've seen this year with developed countries sort of decelerating towards potential growth. And I think China will continue to be booming, um, in part because their party uh, centenary is in 2021. So President Xi will want the economy to be doing well leading into that. So I think we can expect these broadly, these trends to broadly remain. Of course, the U.S. is going into an election in 2020. And so um, we should expect a whole lot of noise around that. But in policy terms, I don't think we'll be able to get much. So, you know, fiscal stimulus from the U.S. is pretty much out of the question given how divided the government is going into an election campaign. And for, for Ireland, Austin, at the end of the year, uh, would it all depend on Brexit? It really critically depends on Brexit. Moving more broadly, however, in Europe, a lot will depend on what the flavour of European politics we see after the June elections. I think if you see a drift towards populism, I don't know that politicians will be happy with a further drift downward in growth in Europe. I think we're getting to levels where you could run into political problems. So I think that's a real issue that could emerge for next year. Okay, pressure, pressure to do something in inverted commas. Megan Green and Austin Hughes, thank you very much. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. Irish Times journalist Jack Horgan-Jones is here with me now to talk about the potential for sanctions under the Companies Act at the Football Association of Ireland after its auditors Deloitte filed a notice to the company's registration office on the grounds that accounts had not been kept properly at the association. Jack Horgan-Jones, this is the week when company law seemed to catch up with the FAI. Tell us what's happened. Yeah, so... um all this revolves around, in large part, revolves around uh, the filing of something called a H-4 form. And even okay. for someone who probably spends far too much of the time perusing company accounts, I wasn't overly familiar with a H-4. So bear sure. with me and we'll we'll run through exactly what a H-4 is. Um, first thing to note is that a H-4 is remarkably, it's a remarkably rare event that something like this gets filed in Irish corporate life. Um, in fact, there's only been one so far this year, which is the FAI, and there's only been four in the last, since, since January of 2018. And 
and it was filed by it's, the FAI's auditors. It's filed by the auditors, exactly, mm. and that's interesting. So initially you might look at it and think the FAI has filed this, but actually it's filed by the auditors, who in this case are Deloitte. And what it says is effectively a notification to the company's registration office, who then need to pass that on to the ODCE, that okay. proper accounts for this organisation have not been kept. Okay, the ODCE is the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement. Yeah, okay. the, the, the corporate watchdog, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what it says effectively is that now, at this stage, the FAI's own auditors seem to be turning tail and saying, we aren't happy with the information in the company accounts, um, we think it is deficient, uh, and therefore, under the Companies Act 2014, we have an obligation, first of all, to flag this with the company, and then thereafter, to go to the registrar and, in effect, go to the ODCE with it. So it's a very significant event. Okay, and what might emerge, or what might happen as a result of this? Well, it now kind of disappears into the the thicket of um, investigations and probes and audits that are going on. Um, and it might be worth just kind of briefly enumerating them. There's the Mazars report. There's the Grant Thornton report. There's an audit which is going to be undertaken by uh, Sport Ireland. And then there's the ODCE investigation as well. Now, I think this will, light, this will most likely form part of the wider backdrop for the ODCE investigation where they might jump into issues around the accounts, around disclosures in the accounts about why the €100,000 was not, the €100,000 loan from John Delaney was not uh, mentioned as a related party transaction, why directors uh, signed off on a statement which said that all relevant audit information had been presented to the auditors. You would have to imagine that, you know, there are at least some worlds in which this €100,000 loan is relevant audit information and so why is there why why wasn't it disclosed? Um, matters around the remuneration and the payment of rent as well. And I suppose the question here for, for the FAI, and if I were the FAI, what would be making me nervous is whether this you know would meet a threshold from the ODCE's perspective, whereby they say, right, let's do what we did with DCC before, let's do what we did most recently with INM and run a company inspection and actually go to the High Court and make an application to do one of those. And that is effectively DEFCON 4 for the ODCE. It's the most serious thing they can do. It's the most invasive and, and and, and, and most serious uh, undertaking available to them, really. But whether, whether they do that or not, it's highly embarrassing for the FAI. It's highly embarrassing for the FAI. And I think that um, the filing of this form uh, and the fact that effectively their, their auditors are saying they no longer can stand over the accounts um, is one of the death knells for the current kind of power structure within the FAI. It immediately preceded... Uh, the decision of the board to indicate that they will step aside. It occurred around the same time as as John Delaney, um, you know, stepping to one side. He may be on the payroll, but he's he's off the pitch now. I think in any kind of realistic way, um, and and it's part of this process. I think where you know. Uh, custody of these investigations and custody of the FAI seems to be passing to uh, an interim team um, composed largely of Sport Ireland and Bazaars and Grant Thornton and people like that and Sport Ireland seem to be taking control of a lot of these processes and they're having an input into the terms of reference for the Mazars report and there was an open question over just how um, how you know curious these reports would be now Sport Ireland are saying you know it's going to look into everything and the audit is going to assess the expenses and everything like that so I think there's there's a shift, a profound shift in corporate power at the FAI moving away from the people who have held the reins for so long and into this custodian team. And the question, of course, then is, is where it goes once the board are totally off the pitch and, and, and after that as well. And the way the board is appointed, the length of time people remained in positions mm. would not accord with normal corporate governance, certainly in the 
Yeah, so I think I think fifteen years odd, a few a few of the lads would would would, would have been mm. on the board, and as you say, correctly, um, that would be highly unusual uh, in the corporate world. I think that rotation is seen as important. Rotation is seen as important. Independence is seen as important. The board of a company is seen as representing the interests of the shareholders in the PLC. You know, they're 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 not there on behalf of management, and therefore turning them over frequently, making sure they don't have too close a relationship with management or staff. That's important. You know, slightly different. Obviously, in the case of the FAI, I presume you're, they're representing football people across. Yeah, so there's an issue the of country like, and, and, and I think and this maybe is the taxpayer to some extent. This is this is something as well that you know I think the FAI made a point that they made in in committee. You know that sports governance is different to corporate governance, mm. but I would like, as you say yourself, I think there's equal there's an equal weight uh, on good governance, and and particularly when you are uh, spending large, uh, reasonably large sums of taxpayers' money over a long period of time, there's an emphasis on good governance. So I think you know these people will go. I think also as well though, we need to look at the or the FAI perhaps should look at the at the method by which the board is appointed. Um, to the best of my knowledge, it's elected by a council. Um, which is representative of the wider kind of what, what the FAI would call the, the footballing family. Um, but like, you know, the football world. And, and that meant that, you know, politically, if you were able to keep those clubs sweet, uh, then, you know, and, and, and maintain those as your power base, it, it, it became easy for you to also have significant power over the board. So whether the FAI wants to re-examine and perhaps introduce a greater form of oversight and vigilation or independence into how um, they look at the board being appointed, that that may be something that is suggested as part of one of the corporate governance reviews. I think that's something that would seem like an eminently good idea as well. Okay. And in terms of the audit and uh, the role of Deloitte, okay, they've put in this form now to the company's registration office. Uh, should they have noticed, or is it a case of they would they weren't given the proper information, or do we just not know? Um, I think they certainly have questions to answer. Um, I think that you know it remains open uh, that they may be asked to explain that at some stage. You know, if for example, you know, a complaint were to be made to one of the accountancy regulatory bodies. But also, I think, in fairness to Deloitte they can only audit what is put in front of them. Mm. This is the que- this is the issue that always emerges this is the in issue. these kind of situations. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in an organisation with a turnover of 50 million quid a year, mm. um, unless a transaction of 100,000 euros, which is a relatively small sum of mm-hmm. money, even though it's a large sum of money to the rest of us, um, unless that's kind of flagged up in something like related party transactions, mm. unless the directors of that company identify that as relevant audit information and flag it up to you, well, then it's not unreasonable to say, look, I can only work with the tools I'm given. And I would sure. imagine that would very much be the Deloitte approach, although, of course, they're they're keeping completely shtum on this as it's a client matter so far. Sure, sure. And what happens next? What, what are we going to see over the next couple of weeks? Um, so over the next couple of weeks, uh, I don't know whether they're actually going to publish the terms of reference for the Mazars review or for the uh, for the Grant Thornton review. But I think I think to a certain extent, um, it may the, the whole process may go into conclave as those uh, as those undertakings are are, are uh, playing out. And um, there may be a kind of preliminary stage whereby you know an initial report, perhaps just on one aspect of the scandal, maybe the expenses or something like that, mm-hmm. is published. But I'd say it would take longer for them to really get into the nitty gritty. And certainly, if the if the Sport Ireland audit is going to be as invasive as they say, and perhaps as forensic as they say, that's going to take time. So I think the next time this really kind of flares up um, will be 
uh, at the AGM in July when the board has promised they step, step aside or if they succumb to the political pressure. Obviously, Shane Ross says he wants them gone sooner rather than mm-hmm. later and decide to call an EGM, an emergency general meeting, uh, before that and and go then. And then the, the questions of, you know, what the new board will look like and how it will be elected, That that's when they emerge. Who will run football? OK, Jack, thanks for joining us. OK, that's all we have time for this week. Today's podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cliff Taylor. Thanks for listening.